0: Good morning. Okay, we're here. Some of us. We're glad that you're here, whether you're awake yet or not. It is an honor to worship with you. Um, if I've not met you yet, my name is Tim, and I'm the lead pastor here. And, um, and we are so grateful to worship with you each week. It is such a privilege that we really don't take for granted and um, are excited about each week. Now, over the next couple of weeks, um, I'm going to be in the book of Philippians. And then we're going to have Father's Day, or actually, we'll have Pentecost, and then Father's Day, and then June 23rd. I don't like to talk about it like my last Sunday before sabbatical, because that just sounds very ominous. It is the Sunday before sabbatical. (laughs) Then I have a message. It's one of our stories that I just... I want to tell and I'm excited about if you've ever wondered why there's a wooden hospital sign above the doors, then be here on June 23rd and um, and you'll get to hear what that's really all about. And so we're excited uh, for that as well. But um, we are preparing for sabbatical. And as Tommy kind of mentioned, we um, we are not leaving Hydrant. We will be back, plan to be back for many, many more years we um, are not having trouble in our marriage. I didn't do anything wrong and have to take a break to go fix something. We are, uh, it's kind of like preventative maintenance. When you change the oil in your vehicle on a regular basis, I hope you do change the oil in your vehicle on a regular basis. It is making sure that the life of your engine is extended as long as possible. Ministry, as you said, is, is a 24-7 kind of thing. It's something that over the last seven years, as Anita and I have been in Goldsboro, we have led the church to shut down, to restart through difficult early years and challenging years, uh, for the church, both in, in ministry and financially. And we've carried some of those burdens ourselves. And as we've come to this season, in order to be able to step into the next, we need to, take a little break and so we're taking eight weeks not eight months not eight years not eight days eight weeks in case you were uncertain exactly how that'll work eight Sundays will be away we have amazing preachers lined up for all eight of those weeks it's going to be a wonderful time uh, for the church the band will be here every week there's I don't even think there's an acoustic set any of those eight weeks full band all eight weeks It's going to be a great time. All of our volunteer schedules are done. The church is ready. And what I truly believe is that we'll come back to a healthier, stronger church than even when we left. And we're so grateful for that. But as I thought about this sabbatical, and I I began to think about time away from Hydrant, which is going to be both wonderful and terrifying. Wonderful and terrifying. It'll be terrifying because... We have put so much of ourselves into this place that to pull away from it and to figure out and answer the question like "Who am I when hydrant's not at the middle of my activity and to to recenter around Christ to recenter in in relationships and to to, uh, to be able to do that and answer some of those questions and, and spend some time. I think it will be wonderful for us and for the church, but it, it got me thinking about the book of Philippians. Now, part of, of what I need to start with and why I was, I was drawn to it is that it's not actually a book. I mean, we talk about the Bible as a book that's a library of books, but most of them aren't actually books. In fact, the The book of Philippians is a letter. It's a letter from a pastor to his friends in a church in the town of Philippi. In fact, it's a it's a letter from a pastor to one of his favorite, if not his very favorite church he's ever been a part of. He loved the people in Philippi. He loved the church. In Philippi, and it comes out, it oozes forth in in every, in every word, in every, in every section, in every part of this letter to the Philippians. Now, you might remember Paul's story. It begins with him as Saul. He is trained as a Pharisee in the Jewish religion. He is a leader among the Pharisees. He is, um, he is known as, as being um, more devoted than anyone else's age to God. He is also the one who played coat rack at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. After that, motivated by his devotion to God, he recruits a team and travels all over with the goal of eliminating Christianity. And as he's on this journey, he meets Jesus. In fact, Jesus stops him in the middle of the road one day and blinds him and knocks him down. Just as a little side note, if you go to the book of Acts, there's no horses, there's no donkeys that knock him off a horse. I don't know why it's in every painting. I don't know why it's told that way in stories. There's no horse there. He just gets knocked on his butt, which strangely enough, that's often how God gets my attention. Is to just knock me in the face. So he does that. He knocks Paul in the face. Blinds him for three days. And begins to talk to him. And invite him to see that Jesus is the very God he has been persecuting and trying to serve. From there he goes and he learns. And then is sent out as a missionary. A church planter. The first church planter. To travel, and his story is all through the the book of Acts as Paul. And he goes and he would go into a town and he would meet with whatever Jews were there. And once they told him he was crazy, he'd start talking to everybody else, known as the Gentiles, and invite them into the story of Jesus, into the story of God, who is now welcoming everyone as his family, giving them life and forgiveness and hope and a future. Showing them what life really is. The way Jesus said, the way, the truth, and the life. But not everybody liked him for this. He was beaten beyond recognition more times than we could count. Imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. He went through every possible torture you can imagine. There was one time where his... Preaching was not really working. He kept getting bounced from town to town to town. We find it in the book of Acts in chapter 16. And then he has a vision at night. He has a dream about a guy in Macedonia who says, come over here and help us. So the next day he gets to his buddies. and says, hey, I had this dream. I think it was God. And they get on a boat and head to Macedonia. And they end up in Philippi. Now, when they get to Philippi, there are so few Jews. There's not even a synagogue. There's not a place of worship for them. Now, we know there are so few, because at any place, by Jewish law, at any place there were ten Jewish men, they were to establish a synagogue. So there's no synagogues, there's not even ten Jewish men in this town. But the few Jews who were there would gather down by the river for prayer. So that's where he goes. He goes to the river to pray and to teach. And he begins to teach them about Jesus. And there are some there who believe. One of them is Lydia. And she opens up her home and it kind of becomes the center of the church life there in Philippi. And one time when they were going down to the river to pray, this young girl was following them. And and actually, she had been following them every time recently. And she would yell as she followed them, Listen to these guys. They know what they're talking about. They know the way to save yourself. And over and over, she would yell this and yell it throughout town as they walked. And finally, Paul gets so annoyed, he turns around, looks at her, and just casts the demon out of her that gave her the ability to see this. Seems like a wonderful story, except she was a slave. To men who used her and her ability to see the future, to make money. And now Paul just took away their income. And they didn't much appreciate that. They incited a riot among the town and, and got them arrested and beaten with rods, is what it says, and thrown in prison. So now they're in prison, it's the middle of the night, Acts chapter 16, and they're singing and rejoicing and praising God in prison. I've not been in prison, it doesn't seem like the first thing that would come to mind to do in the middle of the night in prison. I mean, I might be saying something to God, but it might be something I never hope you hear me say to God. Right? And but they're praising, and the Spirit shows up unlocks their shackles, unlocks the gates. Every lock comes open. The jailkeeper is about to kill himself because he knows he's in trouble with everybody escaping. And they yell out, wait, 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 don't do that. We're all still here. And he goes to them and they begin to tell the story. And he is baptized. His whole family is baptized. And he invites Paul and his companions to eat in his home. And then he gets word. And this is one of the things I love about Paul. He's arrogant. He's, he's, he's arrogant, and he's got a little bit of a jerk streak in him, a little bit of sass. So, the jailkeeper gets word from the magistrates, from the Roman leaders in charge of Philippi. They're in charge, and they, they send word to the jailkeeper, let those people go. And Paul says, I'm not leaving this jail. I'm a Roman citizen, and they beat me without trial, and that's illegal. If they want me to leave... They need to come apologize and walk me out. Love it. Love it. Right? A little bit of that. He's in jail trying to call the shots. Like, nope, you're going to come say I'm sorry. Do you know what they did? Exactly that. They knew they were in trouble. They came and apologized. We're so sorry. We didn't know you were Roman citizens. But please leave. Please leave. So they do. They leave Philippi. And on their travels from time to time, they end up passing back through connecting with Lydia, connecting with the believers there. But now as we get to this this letter, Paul is in prison. He's in prison. And we're not sure exactly where. One of the, the Roman imperial cities, it may be Rome itself, is in prison. And he's writing to the churches. And he writes this letter to the Philippians. And it is filled with this fondness and joy it's it's from a, a pastor who misses his people and wants to be with them but knows that he can't and maybe never will be and there are things that he wants to be able to tell them and so as I was reading through it it just connected for me is the way I feel about hydrant I mean it's no secret this is the favorite place I have ever served a favorite group people in church that I've ever been a part of and partnered with, and, and I don't take it for granted. I am so grateful and love you guys so much that eight weeks is going to be a challenge. And, and as, I, as I thought about that, and I connected with this letter. So we're going to jump in over the next couple of weeks and just look at this, this letter from a pastor to his people, and maybe some of the things that we can learn and take away from it. So we'll start Philippians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, just start in the middle, start working your way to the back. It's in the middle of all of these town names like Philippians and Galatians and Corinthians. You'll find it there in the midst of those. It's only a couple of pages, four chapters long. We're in Philippians, and we're going to begin at chapter 1, verse 1, right at the beginning of the letter. It says, this is a letter from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to all of God's holy people, or your version may say saints, in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. I think it's funny. He like, all the saints, oh yeah, and the leaders too. It almost implies they're not included in the first one. Sorry if you didn't catch what I was trying to say there. May God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, give you grace and peace. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I'm certain that God, who began a good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it's right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. And for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Paul's words of thanksgiving and his prayer reflect the way I often feel about Hydrant. And it really does begin all the way back at the beginning of this chapter where he says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Now sometimes when we think of slaves today, we have a different kind of image of what may have been in the mind of Paul as he wrote this. But at the core is this identity of belonging to Christ and doing whatever Jesus asked him to do. At any point, Jesus asked him to do something. Right? So his life belonged to Christ. His life belonged to Jesus. So for me, like even when the times when I thought maybe I wanted to give up, and the times where I thought we might not be able to persevere, it all came back to this. Well, what is Jesus asking us to do? It's why we teach it. It's why we invite it. It's at the very core of the identity of Hydrant Church are these questions. What is Jesus asking you to do? Because we recognize that at the, our best, our truest selves, we belong to him. And then he continues. He continues with this this gratitude. Not because the church in Philippi is perfect, not because they have all of the answers and they have no problems, but he is thankful for who they are. He's thankful for them. As I'm thankful for Hydrant, I'm thankful for the openness. That is felt and lived and expressed in this place an openness to everyone an openness to anyone whether you can be here every week or once every other month whether you are are in the core of the partners or whether you're on the fringes finding your way in for the first time there is this openness to one another. An openness that allows the, the people who are who are finding God for the first time to, to be on this journey at a pace of grace that allows them to figure that out. An, an openness for those who are rediscovering Christ and healing from wounds, some of those wounds for years or decades old, finding healing. Your openness, your openness to the military of our community and we live in Goldsboro and Goldsboro turns over 30 percent every three years which means like every six months we have a new church and it's pretty wonderful and you embrace it with such joy and love and acceptance and family you invite people to find community and many of us are able to be open because we found something ourselves that we needed so badly. Something we longed for. It's amazing how how God has brought us together, and yet there continues to be this openness that allows people to connect to God and connect to one another. And I am so grateful because I've been so many places that didn't exist. And you are open. You love with open hearts. You give with open hands. you, You serve with open minds. You love well. And I'm so grateful. So grateful for your heart to listen and to respond to God. There's this willingness. I watch. You take notes. You listen. You pay attention. We have teenagers. Most of our teenagers on any given Sunday, are taking notes they're paying attention they're absorbing it they're asking questions later about what was meant or what was said or what does that look like they come on sunday nights and they they absorb the information and want to learn to be who they were created to be there are there's as many right now this is the crazy thing like in our our student ministry, there may be a quarter of them who are considering ministry. People who are open to what God is asking them to do. And our children are that way because our adults are that way. We are open, seeking God. With calls, the emails, the phone, the the messages I get are rarely like, "Hey, I've got this problem. Can I fix it?" It's more like. Hey, I'm struggling to get closer to God. I'm struggling to, to overcome this so I can know him more. How do I get to, there's this desire and this hunger within the people of Hydra Church, and I'm so grateful. It makes standing up here week after week so much more joyful when I can be an advocate, when I can just lay out the, the word love and just let's, here's how we grow together. And there's this grace in this. From the beginning, we took on this kind of crazy idea as a church like we're not going to tell anybody what to do i would never seen or heard of a church that didn't tell people what to do that was kind of the church thing and so he we said we're not going to do that we're just going to ask people what god's asking him to do and then we're going to give grace give people grace for wherever they're at in this journey maybe they're at the beginning maybe they feel like you're still in the locker room maybe they have no clue where the field even is much less being on the game just, there's just room and hope and, and a willingness to answer questions and walk together and figure it out and let people find their path because we believe that God is faithful to His Word. We believe that the Spirit is the great convictor and not the church. We believe that He is the counselor and the guide and the healer and the transformer and the Savior not the church and on one side it's been such a relief to not have to try to be that but it's been such joy to watch a, a church embrace that kind of grace and hope at the same time searching for truth and it's not this kind of mushy acceptance that that calls us to nothing more there's this love and truth that is embodied in this place and I'm so grateful to be a part of it I'm so grateful for the way that you partner in this, whether you have been here for a little while or not, you realize that, like, man, everyone's kind of in. There was one guy who told me, like, the first time I came, I came for a little while, and then I had orders and different things, and I was away for about a year, and I came back. When I came back to Goldsboro, I wasn't sure I was coming back. Because when I was here the first time, it was like you guys were a cult. Everybody's wearing the logo, everybody's bought in, everybody's believing in this, and they're on it. I was like, well, it's not a cult. Nobody's forced to do anything. But there is this great joy in the partnering together of the work, of the, the ministry, and the mission of the church. You come together to love and to serve. You come together in your neighborhood. You come together to learn. You come together. You are partnered in this. We have last year in 2018, which now I guess we're halfway through 2019, but we had like we had like 175 people in worship and had 143 volunteers. Nobody's got any kind of smile on your face because you're like, well, yeah, that the way it's supposed to be. But you know, in most organizations, and maybe in yours 10% do 90% of the work and there is this reverse as people have embraced and partnered in and I'm so grateful I'm so grateful I'm so grateful because I don't worry about stepping away for 8 weeks and the place burning down or going crazy or losing its sense of purpose or vision I don't I don't worry about the church while I'm gone I have no fear For what will happen each Sunday or during the week. Because you have owned this as a partner. You have bought in and believed in what's possible. And loved and served. You have been connecting and filling and overflowing. And I'm so, so grateful. So grateful for your partner and sacrifice through the years. There have been years when there was great sacrifice. And we sacrificed and you know, four years ago. Actually, four years ago this month is when Pastor Liz joined the staff team, and you sacrificed as a, as a group of 50 or 60 to come together and fund a full-time children's pastor. You Sacrificed, partnered together and sacrificed to provide a, a playground for our children. You're sacrificing and come together as we get ready in the fall to hire a youth pastor. You have partnered in sacrifice. We've partnered in patience. As we have been on this journey for seven years, and there were times where we thought, man, this should be happening faster. (laughs) At least I did. Maybe you didn't. (laughs) And you have been patient. You've been patient as we found our way, as we figured things out, as we've solved problems, as we've risen in, in levels of excellence. You have been patient and yet continuing to believe you have partnered in faith. Not just faith in God, but you've had faith in me when I didn't have faith in me. And I'm so grateful. You have believed in what was possible. You have encouraged and been a part of this. You have, you have partnered in the mission of the good news of the kingdom being spread throughout our community. And the reputation you have built for Hydrant is remarkable in Goldsboro and Wayne County it is one of love and acceptance and embrace one of listening and one of truth and hope it's one of family and that is because you have partnered in the work of the kingdom that continues to make a difference on June 6th we have a baptism if you've not been baptized you need to be baptized talk to me We have six who will be baptized that day. And that makes 98 people baptized since the start of Hydrant Church. 98 people whose lives are different. Not just their lives, but you think about the legacy that will continue generations because you have partnered in the ministry and the work of the gospel, of the good news of a God who loves us and transforms our life. And you have partnered in that. And like Paul, I pray. (laughs) I pray for you. I pray for you as I get to share in ministry with you, and I pray for you as we go into this summer. And I really do believe that we'll come back to a healthier, stronger group of people in church than what we leave eight weeks before. But I pray, I pray like Paul prayed for the people in Philippi. I pray that you would grow in both love and knowledge of him. Love and knowledge of Him. It's something that has been held together beautifully in this place. And we will pray it continues to grow in all of us. Not just love, but also knowledge of Him. We need both. We need both. Love without knowledge of Him, love without knowledge, love without truth is mushy, gushy, useless. It's this kind of acceptance that's almost apathy. Right? Without truth, love doesn't really care what you become. But knowledge without love is, fuels pride and judgment and arrogance. Sadly, the reputation of the church in America. And Paul prays that love and knowledge of Him would grow in us. Because together it's transforming for us and those around us. We listen and we love and we answer when asked. And he prays that 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 love and that knowledge would grow. But he does so that, that they could understand what really matters. His desire is that they would understand what really matters so that the entirety of their lives would bring glory to God. See, sometimes the choices we make in life are not about what's right or wrong or good or bad. They're the choices between better and best. Like between good and better. And and Paul's desire for this church that he loves, for the people that he loves and misses, is that they would learn how to choose what is best so that they could step into all they were created to be. So they could know the, the love and joy of Christ in them. He wanted them to know how to choose what was best, to have the wisdom, to be able to answer the simple questions, what is God asking of me, and then to have the courage to do it, and be willing to ask for help when they needed it. His desire is that they would know what really matters, what really matters to God, what really matters in life, what really brings about what is true and good. As any of us want for our kids, we don't just want good, we want their best. We want the best for them. And he wants that for us. And so often, so often we settle for good, good enough, close enough. Not out of an inability. And it's not even about doing more. It's just about wisdom and obedience, love and knowledge put together, unlocking our very best. And his desires that they would know what really matters. and it would bring about God's glory in the midst of it. And it's this remarkable freedom he hopes for them. As he continues to write, there are a couple of perspectives. You see, he he begins to to have this thanksgiving and this prayer and this hope, and he and and then he begins to tell them his story. What's going on with him? It's a letter. He's catching up, but he does so with perspective on his situation and theirs. You see, he's imprisoned; they're suffering. Uh, the persecution as well and and how do you handle that how do you handle life's troubles or when people come against you or when you don't know what to do or it seems like it's all falling apart and not working and so he writes he writes beginning in verse 12 he says this and I want you to know my dear brothers and sisters that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news for everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, and most of the believers here have gained confidence and are boldly speaking God's message without fear. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. But others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my change more painful to me. But that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice. He's in prison. His friends are having trouble. And he says, I will continue to rejoice. He says, for I know that as you pray for me, And the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me. And this will lead to my deliverance. For I fully expect and hope that I'll never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For me, to live is Christ. Or for me, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between the two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. Quickly, four perspectives that Paul seems to want the Philippians to understand. The first is a perspective on difficult circumstances. In the midst of them, just as he had been in in the jail in Philippi, in the midst of these circumstances, he's rejoicing. He is excited because the gospel is continuing to spread. He's recognizing that the good or the bad, the problems in his life can all be used for the purposes of Christ and the kingdom, and that nothing is wasted. That nothing is wasted. He writes in a letter to the to the church in Rome that that God weaves together the good and the bad to bring about what is best. For those that love Him and are called according to His purpose, He he recognizes that even our most difficult circumstances bring about good for ourselves and others. When we've been through challenges, when we've been through difficulties, when we've been through hurt and heartbreak, they become the greatest source of connection and ministry we have with anyone else. This church comes out of the heels of, of our own wounding within the church. And if you've been in church for more than a year, you've probably been hurt in church. It's because there's people in church. And people hurt each other. They don't mean to, we just do. And because of the wounds we experienced, we created this place for other people who have been hurt, and who have given up, or wrote it off, or have walked away to find a new beginning. And find their way back to God. Recognizing that as strange as it is, it's only in the church that we find the healing for the wounds that have been caused by the church. And he recognizes that all of our sufferings have value. And that none of it is wasted in the economy of God. And he has this perspective on it so that even in the midst of it, he can rejoice. Even in the midst of it, he can celebrate because he's confident that God will use it, that something good will come of it. The second perspective he has is on ministry. He says that some people are preaching with bad motives and some with good motives, some purely and some to cause harm. And he says, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter that they're trying to hurt me, to cause me more pain. That doesn't matter. He says... Essentially this, the gospel is bigger than the messenger. The gospel is more powerful than the messenger's worthiness. Two things we learn quickly from that. The first is this. You don't have to be worthy to serve. So often, we don't step up to answer God's call to do this thing he's asking us to do because we don't feel worthy, good enough, ready, that our motives are pure enough, that we're pure enough, that we're acceptable enough. We have this idea that we have to be some certain thing or place in our journey before we can serve, before we can answer that call. And and, and he's saying, listen, the gospel is bigger than your unworthiness. Do whatever you're asked to do. The second thing is show a little grace. He, has, he is not judging these guys at all. There is no judgment in his tone or his voice for their poor motives. Now, there are other places when they get the gospel all twisted, when they get the truth all twisted, he's going to deal with that and solve that. But he, he's saying the gospel is true. The gospel's doing what the gospel does. Their motives are messed up, but let's be honest, none of us always have pure motives. So we'll show them a little grace. Some of us, at times, allow the failure of a messenger to get in the way of our own relationship with God and the church. We let someone else's distorted motives or impurity get in the way of our experiencing God. And we've been hurt, and we feel betrayed, we feel let down by some leader, and we walk away, and some never come back. And we'll point, and we'll blame them. And Paul says, that doesn't matter. None of us are worthy of this. The gospel's being accomplished. Trust me with it. You keep walking with me You keep walking with me, and remember, (laughs) I'll hurt you at some point too. I don't mean to, and I'll try not to, (laughs) but if we're friends long enough, it's bound to happen. You don't talk as much as I do and not say something stupid. I promise I won't mean to, and I'll be sorry, and I will seek forgiveness if I know, but I need your grace. We all do. And we all need your service. As we come into this sabbatical time, there are things and holes and places that you could step up if God asks you to. Don't let any feelings of unworthiness get in the way of doing what he asks you to do. Volunteering of stepping up of being a part. Thirdly, he gives us perspectives on living. He says for him to live is Christ. Living is living in Christ. His source, his goal, his motive, his purpose is Christ. Everything is centered on Christ. It is his guiding direction. Not his ambition, not his desires, not wealth, not his wounds or his hurt, not his guilt or his shame. Nothing else guides him but Christ. To live is Christ. It takes precedence over everything else he feels, everything else he thinks, everything else he wants. His entire life is centered and flows in Christ. And we're invited to begin to move in that direction. Now understand, Paul is writing to a church, and this is his story. Don't feel guilt if it's not your story yet. That's not what he's trying to do. It's more this invitation more than obligation. To begin to move in a direction where he is more and more of what our life is. More and more of shifting the focus from ourselves and our desires and our ambitions and the things we want to the needs, the dreams, and the ambitions, the hopes of those around us. Realizing that we find our greatest joy and purpose as we unlock the potential of others. As we serve others. As we meet the needs of others. We experience Christ. And our life is Christ. And when that happens, dying gets even better. He gives us this perspective on dying. He's not trying to get to the other world. He's not got this kind of otherworldliness, like, oh, earth stinks. Everything about his life is horrible. God, just take me. Come back now, please. He's not there. He's not there. He's not the way our culture is either in, in avoiding death at all costs prolonging life. I mean, we've developed a culture that prolongs life way past what we should and lives in this denial even of aging. It's a whole, like, industry anti-aging. My beard is turning gray. I couldn't dye it if I wanted to because it's a different color than the hair on my head, and it would be really obvious and weird if I came in one Sunday with a dark brown beard. The guy who used to cut my hair said, When your beard starts turning gray, you gotta shave it off. I'm like, not a chance. <laughs> but we we do everything we can to deny the fact that we're getting older, to hide it, to avoid it. And he doesn't do that. He's not avoiding death. He realizes that it's a part of this journey to life that will connect him to, to Jesus even more greatly and deeply than he is in living. But that there will be a time for it. And now is the time great. If now is not, great. I'm going to trust you in living and in dying and in all of it. One of the biggest compliments I can ever share in a funeral is that someone died well. They died with peace and grace and hope and faith. To live as Christ and to die as King. It is... Paul's story, and hopefully one day will be more and more our story. But as we head into this summer, do you know first and foremost how grateful I am for you? That I will be praying for you. Now please know that during that time, you can call us, we can have coffee, we can have a meal, we can go fishing, whatever. We just can't talk hydrant. We can talk Jesus, we can talk coffee, talk your kids, talk your job, whatever. We just can't talk hydrate, But I will be praying for you, that you grow in love and knowledge, and that they unlock this awareness of what is best and what matters most more and more and more. Be praying that our perspectives can begin to shift on, on the life we live, the suffering, the day-to-day, the ministry, and even the dying, that will be filled with the hope that is in Jesus. And I have all the confidence in the world that we will come back with only great joy and excitement and a, and a connectedness and a hope that is even more beautiful than when we leave. So do me a favor. When you can be here, be here. Be a part of it. Let God work on you in this season as we intend to let him work on us. And know, just as Paul loved the church in Philippi, how deeply we love you guys. And I can't wait to continue to walk through this story of Philippians. Can't wait to head into Pentecost and Father's Day and into this Sunday, the 23rd, and into the next seven years of what he's going to do as we seek him together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for examples like Paul and the church in Philippi and their love and partnership together in the work of the church, the work of the kingdom, your work, and your life. And I thank you that I get to be a part of a church like that. Not perfect, not without its problems, but full of hope and joy and a partnership and a focus so that more and more you are shaping us so that our lives are Christ. And one day in your time, our death will be gained. We love you and we are so grateful for this place. And we thank you for every day we share together in this every journey we've been on, up and down, difficulty and success, and we trust you with all of it and all the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. And have a great Sunday. Enjoy a homemade cookie on your way out, and we'll see you next week for the second part of Philippians.